Uh, we're going to be in First Thessalonians, so if you want to turn there. But just before the service, I had someone approach me and um, going through a, a, a difficult season. Uh, I'll give you the information. Single mother. And I just said, how can our church help you? And she said, honestly, right now, I just need a dresser and a nightstand. Uh, that seemed like a pretty simple ask for me to put out to our church. So I don't know, maybe you've got skills in garage sailing and you know how to uh, get a cheap dresser and nightstand, or maybe you have one in your garage that you're not using. Uh, if that is the case, let me know. I would love to connect you with this person so that uh, we can help her and bless her. Um, all right, so we're continuing through First uh, Thessalonians. Believe it or not, we're actually going to be one-fifth of the way through the book after today, as far as the chapters are concerned. So we're just cruising. Uh, I encourage you to, uh, again, open your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got this welcome table in the back. Um, we would love for you to pick up a Bible. Actually, you'll find there at that table as well a, uh, a sign-up sheet where you can just let us know if you would like to be part of that um, service project that Robin Christy are working on. We'll follow up with you on that. So today, as we look at Paul's letter to the church that he helped plant in Thessalonica, we're going to see Paul praise his friends for imitating his life and imitating the life of Jesus. We're going to see Paul encourage his friends to live lives of holiness as they wait for Jesus. We're going to see Paul commend the Thessalonian believers for their faithful gospel witness to an unbelieving world, faithfulness that's proven itself in both word and deed, in their actions. But before we read this passage, I want to give you a little bit of sort of historical uh, and cultural context that I hope will help us understand this particular letter better, and maybe Paul in general better as you encounter him in the New Testament. Uh, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, believe it or not, people had very few options for leisure time if they managed to have any leisure time at all, okay? There's no Netflix, uh, there's no Groupon, there's no internet, uh, there's none of these things that you might go to as sort of a, a source to fill some empty time. So one of the ways in which people would spend their leisure time is uh, by listening to traveling philosophers and traveling orators who would temporarily set up shop in public places like the marketplace or a city street corner or a public park. These were educated, generally men, who would travel the empire of Rome, tickling the ears of anyone that they could get to listen to them with new philosophical ideas. Their goal was to spread a belief system, gather followers, and hopefully in that also line their pockets with financial support uh, from people who were intrigued by their ideas. Uh, now, in addition to defending himself from uh, Jewish people who didn't like what Paul was teaching about Jesus being the Messiah, hostile Jews... Paul, in addition to doing that, also often had to distinguish himself from these traveling philosophers in the way that he taught. His approach to reaching people, in many ways, shared some similarities. But Paul was nothing like these people. Paul would often use his Greek education to teach and persuade people with a really amazing rhetorical skill. 
And we see this in Acts. We see this in his letters to the churches. But what's important is, while he may have used some of their techniques to speak to the people in the Roman Empire, his message was entirely different, okay? Paul came proclaiming not some new philosophical idea or some metaphysical religion, but a radical message that the one true God, creator of everything, had become a man born from among the Jewish people. That God, man, Jesus, came not to rule and to reign, but to serve and ultimately to die on a Roman cross. That God-man then, after dying on the cross, rose from the dead to deliver people from bondage to sin and to death. But even though Paul's message was fundamentally different, that would have been a striking uh, set of propositions. Paul used these common Greco-Roman techniques in his teaching to communicate much like these traveling Greco-Roman philosophers, okay? For these itinerant lecturers, the validity of their ideas, their teaching, would be judged on three primary factors, okay? This was common in Greco-Roman education, Greco-Roman rhetoric. I'm going to put this up here because uh, this may help kind of clarify what I'm getting at, and hopefully you'll kind of see this as you begin to read Paul and in our text today. Okay? First off, you have logos. Logos is the truth claims of the teaching that these uh, philosophers would have brought. In other words, how accurately did their teaching correspond with reality? Next, you have pathos, which is the emotional appeal of their teaching. Were they effective as they stood on the street corner or in the public park in sort of drawing out the heart of their listeners, emotionally moving their audience to be persuaded with their message. And then finally, this idea of ethos, which is the ethical aspect of their teaching. It's where we get the word ethic. Did the concepts of their teaching produce a virtuous and good life in the eyes of their audience, a life that was worth imitating and worth emulating? Now, in many ways, because of cultural context, because this is the world in which Paul was teaching, these were the ways in which Paul would have been judged among the pagans, Romans, Greeks, as he brought his gospel message throughout the Roman Empire. Were his words true? Did they invoke a heartfelt emotional response? And did they produce in the life of Paul an ethical life? Now, the reason I bring this up is because Paul is actually going to appeal to each of these things subtly and and beneath the surface as he writes his letter to the church in Thessalonica. In our text today, Paul's going to claim that the truth of his gospel message had a rippling effect throughout the empire, throughout Macedonia, that it was proven true by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Lagos, the truth claims. He's going to speak about joy in the midst of affliction and suffering. That's pathos, the emotional aspect. And he's going to commend his followers for imitating his virtuous life. That's ethos. Actually, this kind of teaching developed by uh, Greco-Roman educators 
has been effective throughout history such that it, it remains an aspect of Western teaching even today. In our modern teaching terms, you'll hear it laid out like this. What do you want people to know? What do you want people to feel? And what do you want people to do? Uh, if you're fam- just one example of this, if you're familiar with Andy Stanley, this is how he does all of his teaching. What do you want people to know? What do you want people to feel? And what do you want people to do? Paul's going to speak to each of these to some degree in our verses this morning. All right, let me pray, and then let's read our text together. Lord God, would you open our eyes to see the truth of your word? Would you move our hearts with the depth of your love? And would you produce in us by the power of your Holy Spirit a virtuous and good life that imitates Christ in all of his virtue and goodness? Lord, use our time together for that end, we pray in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6-10, through 10, okay? Paul writes, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's start with verses 6 through 7. Permit me to read them again, if you will. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The first thing I want you to see here is that when The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the people of Thessalonica. It was not all rainbows and butterflies after that. In fact, a theme that we're going to see in our study through 1 Thessalonians is a theme of persecution, suffering for association with Jesus. The gospel changes your life from the inside out. That is absolutely true. But it does not necessarily change your circumstances. That's important for you to understand. A change in circumstances is just not a promise that Jesus makes to everyone. When these men and women in particular received the gospel message from Paul, their choice to turn from idols to follow the one true living God, Jesus, came with great suffering and great trials. In fact, in many ways, by accepting Paul's gospel message, they were actually choosing to make their life more difficult, not easier. We're going to get into this uh, a bit in a few minutes, a bit more in a few minutes, but I, I want you to understand, the gospel message was not well accepted in general in Rome in the first century. Uh, Much like it's becoming increasingly unpopular today to be a Bible-believing Christian, those who choose to give their allegiance to Jesus or those who chose to give their allegiance to Jesus in the first century in Rome 
They did so with serious consequences for their choice. The result was that they suffered much affliction for their faith. Not necessarily outright persecution, not necessarily martyrdom, but the natural hardships that, sh- that come from choosing to go against the cultural flow, not participating in what the culture applauds. But now look at how Paul commends them. He says they received the gospel and the suffering that accompanied it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear me clearly on this. Because Christian joy comes from the Holy Spirit, Christian joy is not circumstantial. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to get this so that you know that joy can be a defining mark of your life as a Christian regardless of what you might be experiencing from the outside in. James writes in his letter to the Jerusalem church that we should be filled with joy when we suffer many trials because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. We know that trials and suffering cause us to have greater faith and dependence upon Jesus. And nobody wants to suffer, but Christians don't need to fear suffering when it comes upon them. Because the suffering of this life is simply not worth comparing to the glory of Jesus Christ that awaits us. Not too long ago, uh, one of our dear friends here at Maricopa Springs, I hope you remember Tom Gould. Tom died of cancer. And in the months leading up to his death, I definitely heard sadness in his voice over the way that his death was going to affect his wife. Stephanie, you know, he shed tears as he considered how his death might affect her and change her life. But you know what? In spite of that hardship, in spite of that difficulty, I never heard Tom complain against God. And I know some of you spent some time with him in those months leading up to his death. And I'm sure you would say the same thing. In fact, if you were blessed to have some time with him in those final months, you would have seen joy in Tom's heart because of the Holy Spirit. Tom understood that Christian joy is not circumstantial. It is a transcendent joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that dying of cancer and suffering persecution for your faith are two totally different things. I get that. But the fact remains true in either case The joy that we have as Christians, because it comes from the Holy Spirit, it is not dependent upon the circumstances of our life. And furthermore, as Paul points out, I hope you understand this too, that when our fellow brothers and sisters live joy out in front of us, regardless of their circumstances, when they're going through trials and much affliction and yet they declare, God is good. Amen. When that happens, we cannot help but be encouraged by them as we see their joy and their faithfulness grounded in the Spirit of God, not in whether life is rainbows and butterflies. 
I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm going to do it. I could give Eli as another example here. And his wife, Rachel, having just been through brain surgery, I find myself deeply encouraged by his faith, by his perseverance, by the joy of Christ that I see in him. I just want you to understand this point. In every circumstance, in every trial, in every season of struggle and darkness, the Christian can indeed experience joy because the source of that joy is the Holy Spirit, not something else. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't feel sad. It doesn't mean that we don't feel overwhelmed or distressed or disappointed or even maybe depressed because of our circumstances. Christian joy is not naive. It's not a willful denial of the circumstances. It just means that even in the midst of the most difficult things that life can throw at us, we can bless the name of God because we have fellowship with Him through the Holy Spirit. And our joy in those times then shines forth so that other believers around us can be encouraged and reminded of the gospel truth that Christ Jesus promised He would not leave us as orphans, but that He would walk with us through every season of life. And so I would ask you this morning, especially those of you suffering much affliction, and I know that some of you are, even in the midst of your suffering, do you emanate the joy of Christ? And if not, let me encourage you to renew your mind with Scripture, to remember, like Leanne said, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Call upon the Holy Spirit of God to be merciful to you, to restore the hope and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. That is possible in Christ. Look to Jesus, whose Scripture tells us, for the joy set before Him suffered the cross for your sake. A joyful life in Christ, I want you to know, is a good and right thing. And not only for you, but also because in grounding you in the truth of God's love and mercy, we benefit from watching you as an example. It's good for us, the church, to see you joyful so that we might be encouraged by your example as we walk alongside of you and we see your faithfulness and the powerful imitation of Christ that you're living out. And so let us be mutually encouraged. Those of us not suffering through trial right now, let us be encouraged by seeing your joy in affliction. And you, let us encourage you as we imitate you who are joyful in the midst of the trials. Let's look at verse 8. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. There's a time and a place to make a verbal defense of the Christian faith with words and with reasoning, with sound judgment and logic. We're commanded, in fact, to be ready to do that in season and out of season. But Paul, notice here, he doesn't only commend his followers 
for defending the faith with their words, for being faithful in the proclamation of the gospel message. He cheers them on because their lives speak for themselves. The gospel lived out faithfully in the lives of Christ followers declares the glory of Jesus Christ. As I said last week, the gospel, it's, it's more than a creed. It's more than just a statement of faith. The gospel is more than a message. Of course, it is that, and that is important. But the gospel is also the power of God that accompanies the message as the Holy Spirit transforms believers into the image of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is both a message and it is also a way of life. When we proclaim the gospel message, we have to attach to that proclamation a changed life that proves the power of God, or we undermine the very message that we proclaim. This is the ethos of the Christian life, if you will, the deeds that accompany the good news that we preach. I can't help but see here in verse 8 that Paul's commending the church in Thessalonica, not only for receiving the message that he brought to them, but for carrying on his work of proclaiming that message to the world around them, both in word and in deed. Uh, I received this week an email from a non-Christian who has observed the behavior of someone claiming to be a Christian. And this person who sent me the email was just disturbed how out of sync their life is with their claims of Christianity. This non-Christian sees the hollowness of the life of this person claiming to be a Christian and finds it repulsive. Um, Don't worry, neither of these people attend our church. I'm not throwing any of you under the bus. I just want you to be aware, like I, I see this as a pastor, it, it is brought to my attention, and I just want you to be aware of the devastating effects of the gospel message when it's paired with a life of hypocrisy. It's devastating. One of my goals and dreams for our church in 2019 is that we would raise high our core value of evangelism. That people of our city would look at us and at our church and they would say, I see Jesus. Even if I don't yet believe the message, I can't help but see Christ in the lives of these people. That whatever else they may think about us, they would be stunned by how bold we are to speak the gospel message with our mouth and live it with our lives in a selfless and loving way. So that if Paul were writing this letter to us, he would say, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from Maricopa Springs in Maricopa and in Phoenix, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's encouraged by this church because they not only received his message, but they also became proclaimers of it in word and deed. Okay, so I think we've seen the importance of the gospel message. That is the logos, the truth of Christianity. And I spoke about that in detail last week or the week before. And we've seen the pathos, that is the joy that belongs to those who believe through the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the ethos, 
That is the deeds that accompany a changed heart, including faithfulness to live a life of holiness and take up the work of proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And so now as we get to the concluding two verses of the first chapter, I think Paul is going to kind of weave this all together for us in our text in Thessalonians. Let me read 9 and 10. Paul says about these people out there that they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Quickly, I want to just point out that in verse 9, Paul is making a brief defense of his authority and of the message that he brought to these believers. We're going to see this in more detail as we get into chapter 2 and even a little bit further in uh, 1 Thessalonians. But Paul feels the need to defend his ministry and his message. He unfortunately has to do this at multiple points throughout the New Testament. He's already done it for us in in a passage that we've looked at in verse 5 a little bit. But he wants the church in Thessalonica to be assured that Paul is a teacher worth following. And his message is a message worth remaining faithful to. Unlike these traveling philosophers whose messages were really just a bunch of philosophical hot air, and unlike the hostile Jews who came behind Paul in many cases, false teachers who sought to tear down his message and his reputation, Paul's life was exemplary because the message that he brought was a message of power. The power of God to save sinners from death and from the coming wrath of God for sin. But let's stick with this formula we've been working, okay? What does Paul want his audience, the Thessalonian church, to know, feel, and do? Well, in verse 9, he reminds them of the message that they received, the message of the living and true God. This is an echo of Jeremiah 10.10 where the prophet writes this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. If you remember back to our first week of the series, I told you that the city of Thessalonica had no less than 25 temples to false gods, to pagan idols. As Paul points out, Jesus is the living and true God. He's reminding his audience that those temples are nothing more than monuments to false gods who are not alive in any reality. Their claim to truth is grounded in stone and wood statues carved by the hands of men, which I think is the epitome of irony, isn't it? A man carves an idol out of stone with his own hands and then bows down to it and worships it as God. In contrast, the living and true God is Jesus Christ. God who is not an inanimate object, but the Creator God who formed man out of the dust of the earth and then in humility became incarnate, took on flesh, God born of the Virgin Mary, perfect and sinless, 
who came that mankind might see the revelation of the one true God that all knees might bow and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. God who was crucified and died, but whose power so transcends this material world that He was raised from death to life, showing that His power prevails even over mankind's worst enemies, death and evil. And Paul longs for his friends to continue to feel confidence in this God, to feel a deep sense of hope as they wait for the coming of the one who rose from the dead and promised that he would return again to take all of those who place their trust in him. And Paul's expectation is that their faith in this living and true God, coupled with their hope in his imminent return in power, will continue to cause them to bear the fruit of a holy life. See, the authentic acceptance of the gospel by the Thessalonian Christians, along with the conversion of their hearts to faith in Jesus, has produced an important change in them. They've turned from idol worship to serve the living and true God. Powerful evidence, their life change stands as powerful evidence that this God is living and active and His message changes hearts. And so Paul commends them for this transformation and for their present lives of holiness. And he hopes to spur them on to continued faithfulness with his encouragement. Now, this is actually really difficult for us to understand. And so let me speak to this for a minute. Turning from idolatry is not a concept that we really grasp too well in 21st century America, but it it shouldn't be too difficult for us to understand. Today, in America, if you're a Christian or you become a Christian, the external consequences of that decision to become a Christian are very minimal, aren't they? You really don't risk anything. More than likely, you're not going to lose your job. Your life is stable. You're not going to forfeit your house. Because in our country, in this present time, Christianity is still largely tolerated as an acceptable worldview. But that was not the case for the Thessalonians. Their conversion to Christianity came at an incredibly high societal cost. Okay, Let me remind you. For one thing, this city is a hub of emperor worship. It was the location of one of the imperial cults, which was politically advantageous for this city. Now suddenly there's this movement among the population that denies that the emperor is a god, people who refuse to bend the knee to the emperor as god, and this now puts the city's preferred political position in jeopardy. It brings their favored political status with Caesar into question. Furthermore, pagan superstition was a strong motivator, and Christians refusing to participate in idol worship to appease the gods could bring about disastrous consequences upon the city of Thessalonica, at least according to pagan superstition. Uh, 
get this, Thessalonica is only 50 miles from Mount Olympus. So from the city of Thessalonica, these pagans could see the location where their pagan gods supposedly sat in authority and watched the world bringing retribution on those who denied them. The place of the gods, according to the pagans, is literally visible from the front door of their house. And so what kind of wrath and anger might these pagan deities bring upon the city of Thessalonica when they peer down from their mountaintop and observe these rebellious Christians refusing to pay them tribute? Pagans who largely lived in fear of the wrath of their gods are not prone to simply overlook that kind of behavior among this new religious sect. And so the point is this, Christianity was not well accepted in the public sphere, and the price of being a Christian was high. Maybe the nearest equivalent today might be a Muslim becoming a Christian in the Muslim world, where converts to Christianity risk maybe their livelihood, maybe their homes, maybe even their very lives to be associated with Jesus. We really have a hard time understanding this as American Christians. But you know what? I actually find that sad. I find it sad that we don't think being a Christian in America today actually costs us very much. I think that shows just how close our Christianity is to the paganism of the 21st century. Because shouldn't it cost us something to bear the name of Jesus Christ? Even in a culture with Judeo-Christian underpinnings like ours. Somehow we've come to believe the lie that we can be Christian and still serve the idols of America. And so we offer our sacrifices to materialism. Someone was telling me this week about how angry they became at their wife because of a simple mistake to not pay a bill that might cause their credit score to go down. We sacrifice to the idol of materialism. We bow before the God of convenience, only giving to Jesus the scraps that haven't already been claimed by some other idol. We serve the banks, the entertainment industry, the gods of success and education and achievement. We buy into the false gods of self-esteem, self-actualization, self-fulfillment. Autonomy is the God of America. And the fact of the matter is, Christians in America aren't more despised because we're often more American than we are Christian. Can we acknowledge that? And I don't want to be too hard, but I do want us to wake up to this reality. Christianity is exclusive by nature. God lays claim to your whole heart and your whole life, and He will accept nothing less. You cannot continue to face the idols with your back to Jesus and call Him Lord. Christianity requires that you turn from idol worship to serve the living and true God. And the reason why Paul has such wonderful words of encouragement to share 
with the Thessalonian believers is because they've utterly abandoned the idols of their culture to swear wholehearted allegiance to Jesus, no matter the affliction that decision might bring. And here's what they understood. As they waited for the return of Jesus who would save them from God's wrath towards sin, they understood that their suffering in this life was a short-term loss in exchange for a very long-term gain. They had their hearts fixated on the idea of delayed gratification. The idea that setting aside the immediate benefits was well worth the cost of the long-term joy of receiving Jesus. And so the Thessalonians were happy to suffer the wrath of man for their association with Jesus because they knew that the wrath of man pales in comparison to the wrath of God that is yet to come for those who reject Christ. And they would much rather persist in their faithfulness to God and be spared from His wrath than capitulate to the culture around them to avoid the rage of man. They chose to live lives of present holiness, serving the living God, rather than than live lives of compromise to appease impotent idols. They looked to a future hope in Jesus Christ, rather than the immediate relief that might come from trying to be half in and half out. Friends, brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question this morning. Have I truly, wholeheartedly turned to God from idols? Have I forsaken the ways of mankind in exchange for the holiness of Jesus Christ? And if that is true of you, then I ask you to prove it. To lay hold of the same teaching that Paul gave to the Thessalonian church clinging to the truth of Jesus Christ and His Word, placing all of your hope and your confidence in His sure and definite return, and doing what Christ called all those who would come after Him to do, to serve the living God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And I promise you, I promise you, that the short-term sacrifice of a life lived for Jesus will be well worth the long-term glory of being welcomed home as a child of God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, would you instill that truth in us? Would our hearts burn with this conviction? That a life lived for Christ, no matter the cost, is well worth the price paid. That turning from idols to the true and living God is no sacrifice at all, but only great benefit to us as we receive Jesus. Lord God, be merciful to us as we learn in greater degree how to turn from those idols. Encourage us as we do and fill us up with your joy. Let us live lives of holiness that prove the truth of the message we claim in Jesus Christ. Amen.